Let us pray. Gracious God, remind us that it is still Easter. Speak to us words of resurrection, truth, again this day, and let those words lead us throughout the days ahead. In the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 57 through 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. He then rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is the day of preparation, the chief of priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember what the impostor said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may go and steal him away. And tell the people, he has been raised from the dead, and the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, for these next two weeks, you will hear two sermons by two preachers, but just one title, What Resurrection Means to Me. This week, you have probably figured out already that you are stuck with me, but next week you'll hear from Reverend John Cook. It is my hope and my prayer, though, that you will actually not be satisfied with our reflections and that you will wrestle with the question yourself. Now, if it feels too big, if the thought of wrapping your head around the single biggest event in the history of the Christian tradition, an event that defies explanation, proof, or comprehension, if that feels a little too big, let me offer a word of guidance. If you want to truly consider what resurrection means to you, Release yourself from any expectation that you are going to figure it out entirely. It is almost by definition beyond us mere mortals. It is impossible to pin it down because it is more than any one thing. What resurrection means in my life may be different from what it means in your life. And that may be different from what it means in a refugee's life. And that may be different still from what it means in a soldier's life. And what it means in your life today is probably different than what it meant last year or what it will mean next year. If resurrection is capable of doing every new thing, it will always have the capacity to surprise us. 
So what does resurrection mean to you? I suspect your answer will change many times over, and that is fine. But I do hope you'll think about it. A few years ago, I heard a theoretical physicist give a lecture. Physicists study the fundamental laws of nature, she said. And so she spends her day looking for the most basic ingredients that make up everyone and everything. And then she said, there is scientific evidence. There are studies that prove time and time again, humans almost always fail to notice things that they are not expecting, even scientists. But when we expect to find something, when we are intentional about seeking it out, well, we are that much more likely to find it. That's why I urge you to think about resurrection, to consider what it means to you. Because by doing so, it increases the odds that you will recognize it when it comes to you. Every gospel account of the resurrection is unique in its own way. Every author emphasizes something different in order to teach us something particular. Only Matthew includes those backroom conversations that Judy just read. Others mention Joseph of Arimathea taking Jesus' body and placing it in the tomb and the tomb being covered with a stone. But only Matthew reports the nervous chatter that follows. The chief priests and the Pharisees, the same chief priests and Pharisees who lobbied Pilate to condemn Jesus to death, they now quote Jesus. Remember what he said, they say to Pilate. Remember, he said that after three days he would rise again. Now their main concern is that his followers, intent on making that seem true, well, that they might break in and steal his body. That, they say, would be an even bigger problem than the problem they had just resolved. You have to secure the tomb, they demand. Secure it past the third day at least. And so Pilate says, will you have a guard of soldiers at your disposal? Go and make it as secure as you possibly can. And so they go and they seal the stone over the opening of the tomb. Matthew uses that word three times, secure, three times in three verses, repeated and redundant, confident and strong, secure, secure the tomb. The word that it comes from is translated as a noun into security. It is just as often translated certainty. Make the tomb secure, they said. Make certain that body doesn't go anywhere. Frederick Beekner, a theologian, he says that he can't help but wonder, though, if there might be a second reason that they were so anxious about keeping the tomb secure. 
Not just that his body might be stolen, but maybe also that quietly in the back of their minds or in the corner of their hearts, they were afraid. And these are Buechner's words. They were afraid that the man they had crucified really would come alive again as he had promised. That the body that now lay dead in the tomb, disfigured by the cross, that this body would start to breathe again, stand up in its grave clothes and move toward them with unspeakable power. And to the extent that they feared that was an actual possibility, they're being told by Pilate, yes, go, make it as secure as you can. Well, that was to have the earth pulled out from under them. He says, how do old men keep the sun from rising? How do soldiers secure the world against a miracle? Trying to prevent this, he says, was like trying to stop the wind with a machine gun. A seal, a stone, and an array of soldiers. And even still, nothing could hold him. When I consider what resurrection means to me, this pre-resurrection story becomes tremendously important. It's the story of the secure tomb in addition to the story of the empty tomb. Because resurrection, it means more and more in my life. It makes more and more of a difference the more I grasp just how strong it really is when I remember just how much it is capable of breaking through. And Matthew makes that plainer than anyone else. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gather up all their tightest security, all of their strongest certainty, and resurrection still carries the day. Over the years, I have come to believe that resurrection is so strong, so determined, so stubborn, that it finds us on both sides of the grave. That resurrection is not just what happens for us after we die, it's for us and while we are alive, too. Now, sometimes that's actually harder to believe It's not hard to imagine that once we are freed from the bounds and labors of this world that we will see Jesus face to face and we will be transformed. It can be hard to imagine, though, that we can be transformed in this life, too. After all, so much of the world looks decidedly untransformed. And yet, I believe that resurrection, if it can overcome everything humanity hurled at it in Matthew's gospel, it can overcome everything humanity hurls at it today as well. Resurrection finds us on both sides of the grave, and I have seen it with my own eyes. I once knew a man who grew up in a home with alcoholism and abuse, He made it through his childhood. He worked as hard as he could to build a different sort of life. He wanted to leave the past in the past. He married a kind woman. He raised his children well. He never touched a drop of alcohol, not once. 
He erred on the side of gentleness and kindness. He never raised a hand against another soul, and he never told another soul about all that had happened to him. While his children were growing up and his parents were growing older, he lived with this secret bottled up, absolutely certain that if he let it out, that sort of sickness would infect everyone he loved. Finally, in his mid-60s, he realized that he was very tired. And so he walked into an Al-Anon meeting, and he said, I am the child of an alcoholic. And in fits and starts over several weeks, he found the courage to tell them everything. He told it, and the world didn't end. In fact, if you were to ask him, he would tell you that that is when at least part of his life, finally began. The stone was rolled away, and he broke out of the tomb. Resurrection finds us on both sides of the grave. I once knew a woman named Sybil. For most of her life, Sybil was married to Tony. Tony was a giant of a man in character, not so much in stature. He was only slightly taller than me. He was always the one out in the crowded church parking lot, though, directing traffic and giving an arm to anyone who needed it, making sure that everyone came and went from worship safely, no matter what the weather, even in a snowstorm. But to be honest, that was really all I knew of him until I went to visit him in the hospital one day. I asked for Tony Robbins, and the receptionist said, oh, you mean Dr. Robbins? And I said, sure, Tony. And she said, no. She said, ma'am, in this hospital, he is Dr. Robbins. And I had no idea, I was still new enough in my church, I had no idea that Tony, director of traffic, was also one of the foremost surgeons in the Midwest. He died shortly after my visit of a rare complication during routine surgery. It seemed particularly cruel, and it broke Sybil's heart. I worried about her for months, talking with her, visiting with her, praying for her, but nothing really seemed to make a difference. She agreed to attend a grief support group, but week after week, she would listen and sit quietly. And after every session, I would receive a voicemail that said, I'm sorry, it's just too hard. I cannot talk about losing the love of my life. This went on for quite some time until the very last day that we were scheduled to meet She came into the room with a big bag full of framed photographs, and she said, if you don't mind, I would like to tell you about my Tony. And after all of the photos were shared, she said to the group, I did not think this was possible. I told Jenny multiple times it was too hard, that my heart was too broken. But then week after week, I watched all of you do it. I saw your strength, and your strength became my strength. You have saved my life, she said. As sure as I have ever known 
anything in this life. I watched Sybil Robbins be resurrected right in front of me. Resurrection finds us on both sides of the grave because it is strong enough to defy death in all of its forms. Now, all of the Gospels tell us this, but Matthew does his best to point out just how much work resurrection really has to do, just how much effort, just how much miracle it has to summon forth. And I think that means that whatever your most deeply held pain may be, whatever heartbreaking lament you may be carrying, whatever terror or anger may keep you up at night, whatever in your life feels like it absolutely certainly cannot be overcome, resurrection can break through it. Easter promises that the stone that is keeping us captive by all of that hurt or fear, it can be rolled back and the light of a brand new day will come rushing in. What resurrection means to me is the strong and sure promise of new life that finds us on both sides of the grave. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.